Well, this is a, a very special Sunday, a very special weekend. Um, 2,000 years ago, historical event, the culmination of redemptive history. Ever since the fall of man in Genesis 3, God had planned the giving of his son to die a horrific death on the cross for our sins. The death, burial, resurrection um, has a great significance for this world, for each and every one of us. The, the death of Christ is a revelation of God's heart. His only sons um, being a curse for us on the cross, bearing our shame, reveals his perfect holiness and righteousness that God will deal with sin. That God will, because of his perfect righteousness and justice, deal and reckon with sin. And because our sins were placed on him, the Father didn't hold anything back. He poured out his wrath, his anger, his judgment, his indignation on Jesus. And our Lord drank the full cup of God's wrath. Paul says that this is how God treats treated his own son, how much more severely would he treat the enemies of God whose sins remain? The cross of Christ reveals God's perfect righteousness. At the same time, it is a demonstration, a revelation of his sacrificial, contra-conditional, infinite love and mercy. It is a demonstration of God's love for us. As Kirk shared that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't uh, call us to a bilateral contractual uh, uh, relationship where we meet him halfway. We own up to our sins. We pay for our sins. We promise to be moral and righteous and good and then he will show us his love. No, he unilaterally, volitionally, unconditionally gave his son to show his heart of love towards us so that whoever, whoever, anyone in the whole world and through human history would believe would have eternal life. The death of Christ reveals to us the heart of God in this way. Also the resurrection three days later on Sunday morning Death could not hold him. His body would not see decay. Uh, death could not contain him. The, the boulder was moved. He was raised from the grave. And he rose. It was resurrected, revealing that he was indeed sinless. He was perfectly righteous. Only those who sin shall die and remain in death, but not Jesus, because he was sinless in his life. And it reveals to us God's power, God's might, God's majesty, that death had no authority over him, and that he is risen, and that he is right now alive, this very moment. He is uh, sitting at the right hand of God's throne. And one day, bodily, physically, he will come back to rule and reign on the earth as our king. That is, this is the main message of Easter. This is the main truth of this weekend. Our Lord's faithfulness to live a perfect life, his death on the cross on Good Friday, and his resurrection from the grave on Easter Sunday. Now, beneath that main plot, main story, main theme, there is a subplot. There is a secondary story that dovetails with the first. In the story of Christ, we see his faithfulness. In the secondary story, we see man's faithlessness. We see Christ's holiness. We see man's sinfulness. We see Christ's love. We see man's selfishness. In this secondary story, we see 
um, man's sinfulness exposed to its extreme. The humility of Christ is at the forefront. In the backdrop, we see man's pride. We see that the pride that is pervasive, pride that is in every human heart. This dovetailing, I believe, is not an accident. This uh, contrasting, like a jeweler will bring out a diamond and you would place it on a black uh, cloth to highlight the beauty of the jewel. This is not an accident. God in his divine wisdom and providence uh, presented the humility of Christ and the backdrop, he showed us the, the pride that is in the heart of every man. He did this because this is why we will not come to Christ. And this is what is keeping us, dear Christians, from growing in Christ. If you're not a believer today, if you're honest with yourself, honest with God, this is the reason. And if you're a believer today and your heart is hard towards Christ, it's because of this reason. The core sin of every person is pride. The first and last thing that God deals with us is our sin of pride because pride at its core is self-love, it's self-worship, it's self-adoration. Therefore, it is anathema to spiritual devotion because the cross is all about selflessness. Pride and its essence is anti-God. It is idolatry. It is something that God is against. In fact, it's something that God hates. Uh, Proverbs 8.13, God said, I hate pride and I hate arrogance. Psalm 10.4, the reason the wicked do not seek after God is because of their pride. They have no room for God in their hearts because their thoughts are full of themselves. God said to the Israelites, the reason for their disobedience is their stubborn pride. Leviticus 26.19. Obadiah 1.3 was the pride of Edom that deceived them. Proverbs 21.4. Haughty eyes, a proud heart are sin. Isaiah 2.12. The Lord of hosts has a day against all who are proud, who are lofty, lofty, against all that is lifted up, it shall be brought low. James chapter 4 verse 6 said, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So this is what makes us enemies of God, our pride. If we are humble, God is for us. God is on our side. If we're proud, we are against him. John Stott has said, pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. And the most eminent theologian that America has ever produced, Jonathan Edwards, has said, What a foolish, silly, miserable, blind, deceived, poor, warm am I when pride works. Now, he's a pastor. He's a Puritan pastor. And he's speaking in the present tense. Now, there are various kinds of pride, a variety of species and categories of pride, I, I propose to you this morning that the worst form of pride, the most insidious kind, a species of pride that is the most evil, violent, pervasive, and deadly is spiritual pride, religious pride, pride in our own morality, our own goodness, our own knowledge, our moral superiority that is tied to our own devotion to God, this is the worst kind, the most deadly kind of pride. Pride that thinks that we are good, that we are righteous, that we love God more than others. 
it is seen in the Bible, it's seen in the New Testament, that the drunkards, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, those sinners, the outcasts of society, the worst they would do to Jesus is say no. Right? Not for me. No thank you. Right? The worst they would do is call him names, mock him, scoff him, and make fun of Christianity. But the religious people, especially the, the leaders, religious leaders, for them, it was not enough to just say no. It was not enough to mock and scoff. Uh, they were the ones who conspired to torture Jesus. And they were not satisfied with the physical pain upon his body. They conspired to murder him. And even after murdering Jesus, they were not satisfied. And so they went after the Christian church, like Saul, who became Apostle Paul. And to this day, this continues. Jesus, therefore, had the worst uh, rebukes against these religious leaders who were filled, puffed up with themselves and their own righteousness. And he called them out every opportunity. I mean, he loved sinners. He welcomed them. He ate with them. He fellowshiped with those who were prostitutes, drunkards, right? people who were supposed to be on the outcast of society. Yet he welcomed and loved them. And the religious, he said of them, woe to you. No, I, I, I condemn you. I curse you. I, I, you know, woe to you. It's I damn you. You Pharisees. You scribes. You hypocrites. For you tithe, mint, dill, come in and neglect the weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly you appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So outwardly you look righteous to others, but within... Your hearts, and God is a heart searcher, you are full, overflowing with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so throughout the Gospels, we see this battle raging between Jesus and those who are spiritually proud, the religious people. And it overflowed to the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, on Easter weekend, we'll study this morning a passage about this week and 2,000 years ago, we are shocked to find that this evil, this wickedness, is found not, not just in the enemies of Jesus and the religious leaders, but it's found within the followers of Jesus. The very men who are disciples of Christ, who are devoted to Him, we find this spiritual pride. And not just within the 12, but in the heart of the leader of the apostles, Apostle Peter. He's the leader of the disciples. And in his own in his heart, we find spiritual pride that is out of control. I think um, this is uh, God's way of telling us that for us to truly grow in Christ, this must be broken in everyone's life, especially Christians. That Christians are the most vulnerable to spiritual pride. And people might say, wow, Pastor James, you know, Easter Sunday, shouldn't it be like encouraging, hopeful, new life, resurrection, you know, Easter eggs? Oh, no, not Easter eggs. <laughs> Except from that about, about being hopeful and encouraging, well, it, it might sound like a downer of a message, but I would, I would, I would bet by the end of this, this morning, you will find that this is the most encouraging passage in all of the scriptures. You will go away, I believe, lift it up, because what Peter discovers is um, he sees his sin behind his righteousness, and at the same time, from that valley of vision, he looks up and he sees the beauty of our Lord. Right? It's like the contrast. The darker, right? 
the, the backdrop, the brighter the jewel. So more we go down the valley of our sins, more beautiful Jesus becomes. So in a way, it, it starts out very discouraging, right? But it ends up so very beautiful. This is how uh, God broke Peter of his spiritual pride. He showed him his sin behind his morality, sin behind this religious devotion, the evil behind the pride behind his righteousness. And then in that context, he was disgusted with himself for the first time. He looked up and he saw the cross and he saw the, the beauty of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, if you don't, we don't have few Bibles, it's our fault. If you don't, we're going to have a passages projected for you. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 31. This is uh, Thursday night, late Thursday night. Our Lord had just washed the feet of the disciples. Judas has left to betray him. Our Lord just instituted the Lord's Supper. And then with the cross in sight, our Lord predicts the betrayal of not just one disciple or a few of the disciples, but he predicts that all of them will fall away. Verse 31, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. All fall away. The Greek word is scandalizo, from where we get the word scandal. They will trip, they will stumble, they will fall away. It is middle voice. Because of Jesus, because of what will happen to Jesus, they will all fall away. And there'll be, a, it'll be scandalous what they will do but they will fall away from Christ. Peter's responses, his consequent actions reveal his spiritual pride. Five signs of Peter's pride. First is his response in verse 33. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. The first sign of Peter's pride is self-righteousness, judging others. Believing that you have a superior spirituality or godliness and, and, and devotion than other people. See, Peter, what is he saying? He's saying, I think you're right, Jesus. Yeah, Thomas, that guy's weak sauce. That guy's half-hearted. He's always back and forth. For him to fall away, I think that's right, right? And John, he's that tender-hearted, beloved disciple, always sitting next to you, right, leaning on you every meal. Man, that guy, he's not a man. He's still a boy. He doesn't know what it means to commit and suffer and sacrifice. Him falling away, I'd give 50-50 chance that he'll fall away. So some of these guys, I understand your suspicion, your doubting. I have my suspicions as well. They are weak. They are half-hearted. They're not committed, but not me. Right? I'm godly. I'm a man. I'm committed. I believe, I'm strong, I'm different, I'm special. Maybe a little bit of Kirk's like, uh, you know, experience there. It's like, you're special and you think you're special. And, and so Peter's, I'm different. They will fall away, but flatly, not me. And that's like the heart of spiritual pride. You, we think we would never do that. I mean, I, I saw this interview on 60 Minutes, on a major, important uh, uh, figure in our time, right? A major news story broke out about a year ago, and the person interviewed was Conan O'Brien, right? There's supposed to be a laugh there. <laughs> a little bit of irony, but anyway, anyways. Okay, I've got to work on that a little bit for next time. Um, so they're interviewing Conan O'Brien. You guys know what happened, right? Um, you know who he is, right? <laughs> I went to Spokane, Washington, to preach this message, and they had never heard of Conan O'Brien. Like, people in Spokane, they don't watch TV. I mean, <laughs> um, so they were interviewing him because of what Jay Leno did. He took his job, and he conspired and backstabbed him. And Conan O'Brien was upset. I mean, he grew his beard. He was all disheveled. You know, he kind of gained weight. He was just kind of coistered in his, like, $20 million house um, <laughs> all by himself. And he was so angry, and he said, I would never have done that. I, where Jay Leno, what he did was so wrong. What, what gets me is I would, I've never done such a um, uh, you know, hypocritical or, or, or duplicitous thing. Now, that's how we feel. That's how all of us feel that in some way. 
towards our friends or co-workers, when we're wronged, when we're offended, when we're sinned against, our self-righteousness is, how could she say that or how could he do that? I would, I would never have done such a thing. Spiritual pride, feeling of superiority. Well, that's what Peter is saying. I will. They will fall away. I can see them scandalizing Christianity by doing this dastardly act, but I never will. The second sign of Peter, uh, Peter's pride, spiritual pride is, I will never fall away. I mean, boasting in self, trusting, confident in self. It's like he has a high view of his own godliness, own commitment, own spirituality. In the Greek, it is uh, the emphasis in the Greek is in the negative. I will never fall away. And how could Peter say that? Right. James 4 says that all such boasting is evil. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You have no idea what's going to happen a minute from now, an hour from now, a year from now. No one, and for any, any human being to say is, I will never do this, or I will always be faithful. You know, you have forgotten yourself. Peter has lost himself. He's forgotten who he is, that he's a sinner, right? He's a sinner. Only, only God can say never and always. Human beings, we can never guarantee anything. If anyone guarantees anything to you, it's because they want to sell you something, right? They want your money. So when anyone says always or never, you know, hold your pocketbook and run, right? Peter's forgotten himself. Well, Christ responds to Peter, oh, really? You'll never fall away. You'll never. I say to you, truly, this very night, within a few hours, the rooster crow is 3 a.m. Within a few hours, Peter you're not going to just fall away from me. It's middle voice, something a passive voice, or something happens to them. You will deny me. Right? And this is middle voice. You will do it yourself. It's not going to happen to you. You're going to decide and deny me, reject me. It's not falling. It's not scandalizo. It's rejection, disavowing Jesus. A few hours, not once, not twice, but three times, Peter. What do you mean you will never few hours, you're not going to deny me, not once, but three times. You know, and so Peter really forgets himself. This is not just some guy off the street saying this. This is not some, you know, hack. This is Jesus, right? The one who walked on water, right? One who healed lepers, one who gave sight to the blind, gave hearing to the deaf. This is Jesus that raised Peter's mother-in-law from death, right? Maybe that's why Peter is kind of upset, right? It's why Peter's kind of hard-hearted, <laughs> right? This is Jesus speaking to him, and what does Peter say? He says, verse 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Right? He is uh, saying Jesus is wrong, right? You're, 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 you're deceived, you're, you're, you're in you're, this is erroneous. He's correcting God. You don't know the truth. You don't know my heart. You don't know how committed, how devoted I am to you. I will not only follow you, I will die with you. I will never deny you. And you see how it's, it's a good thing. Right? For Peter to say he wants to die with Jesus, it's a righteous thing. It's a good friend. But his heart is all wrong. His motivation is all wrong. It's, this righteousness is damnable. It separates him from God because he's speaking against Christ, speaking against God, and he's saying of himself that he is righteous when he is not. And uh, sin is never contained. It always spreads like gangrene. All the other disciples agree with Peter. Jesus is wrong. Right? It's an insurrection, right? rebellion. Outright, just casting off Jesus' authority. They all agree Jesus is wrong. He has no, no, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Right? Third sign of pride is just rejecting what Jesus has said, rejecting the Bible, saying, "God, you don't know. You don't know my heart. My experience trumps the Bible. What I believe, what I think, what I feel, what I experience is of." 
higher authority than the scriptures. That's spiritual pride. The fourth sign of Peter's pride is seen in the next passage. They go to a, a garden near the olive press called Gethsemane. And our Lord is sorrowful to the point of death. So much so, he only asks his most intimate disciples, Peter, James, and John, to come and pray with him. He only allows the closest to see him at his most vulnerable. And he asks them to watch and pray with him because he is um, walking to the valley of the shadow of death. And in his prayers, our Lord is sweating drops of blood. He's dreading the cross. And I said this Friday night, it's not the physical torment of the cross. I mean, many men have died horrific deaths with courage. Our Lord is not a coward. Right? He's not afraid of pain. No, what he's dreading is the spiritual torment of being condemned by God, cursed by God, abandoned by God on the cross, where he will experience hell. He will drink the, the last drops, every, to the very last drop of cup of God's wrath, and he'll be isolated and experience hell on Calvary. The spiritual agony was what he agonized over, so much so he sweated drops of blood. So he asked his disciples, please pray with me. And then he comes back every hour and just, you know, Jesus is going to the cross to die for their sins. Right? He's asking his friends to pray. And here is Peter, I will die for you, but I can't stay up and pray for you. Right? I will give my life, but I can't stay up to pray for you. And that's spiritual pride. Spiritual pride is we want to do these heroic acts of righteousness. And so we do all these great things, go on missions and, I don't know, like stand for Jesus and fight for the Bible and do moral things. And yet in our private lives, in our personal lives, there's incredible sins and weaknesses and failures, and yet we're blind to it. And so outwardly we're righteous, but inwardly, just like the Pharisees, full of just arrogance, self-dependence, and selfishness, and bitterness, and resentment, unforgiving spirit, backbiting, jealousy, envy, boasting, judging others. And I know this because this is my experience. I'm talking about my own heart. We're all the same. Only Jesus is righteous. We're all sinners. And so a prideful person doesn't pray. Right? They, they plan, they think, they lose sleep, they're anxious, they connive, they conspire, they calculate, they do Excel spreadsheets, right? they do Google searches, but a prideful man, prideful woman doesn't go to God in prayer, right? doesn't depend upon the Lord uh, on his or her knees. We see Peter's pride here, and then... The final sign of Peter's pride is seen in the next text, verses 51 through 53. Uh, They're in Gethsemane. Third time, Christ comes. Here comes my betrayers. Arise and let's go. And Judas has brought the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And so for silver coins, Judas agreed to point out who Jesus is. So the last thing the Pharisees want to do is arrest the wrong person. Right? This was before like uh, you know Google Images, right? This was before Twitter and before like you know email. Right? They, they easily have arrested the wrong guy. So Judas, I know Jesus. I will point him out to you, and the sign I will give is the one I kiss. That is Jesus. So Judas hypocritically kisses Jesus. The temple guards come to arrest Jesus, and what does Peter do? Peter takes out his butter knife, right? He's not a soldier. He's a, he's a fisherman. But he says, I will protect you, Jesus. Right? Don't be scared. Right? Jesus, hold my hand. Right? Stand behind me. Right? I've got you. Don't, 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 be, don't be afraid. I will defend you. I will fight for you. And that's spiritual pride. Right? Christ said, you know, put away your sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels, right? What are you doing with that butter knife, Peter, 
right? My father, if I ask him, he will at once send 12 legions of angels, a Roman legion comprised of 6,000 men. And so 12 legions of angels will be in excess of 72,000 angels. Now the angels of God in the Bible are messengers and warriors. They are not, right, those um. Those puppy-eyed, precious moment stalls angels, right? Always rescuing kittens from trees, putting band-aids on on people. It's not Michael Landon with his full hair, right? Going and talking to people. They were warriors. A single angel of God in 2 Kings 19 killed 72,000 Assyrian troops in one night, right? A single angel destroyed a whole army of Assyrian troops. This 12 legions of angels, the power is unbelievable. That was at Christ's disposal. And yet Peter wants to protect Jesus and fight for Jesus with a butter knife. And that is spiritual pride. When we want to fight for Jesus, when we get angry, we want to fight back, lash back. Right? And so yes, other religions, you make a caricature of Muhammad and they threaten those who draw cartoons of him. Right? They send death threats and even kill people. You burn their holy book and there's murder that follows. Well, Christians, there was all this uproar about the, the painting of pissed Jesus. They had a painting of Jesus and they, they urinated on him and that was a modern art. Or to see a picture of, G, of, of art, to stand on the face of Jesus. And Christians got all angry. And people like, Jesus died on the cross. He was shamed publicly. He was cursed by God. How was a little bit of a picture of a, of a piss on him going to dishonor him? That makes no sense. How was stepping on his face going to disrespect Jesus when he drank the cup of God's wrath and he was condemned for us? Nothing we can do, right? Dishonors him. Then our sins. It is our spiritual pride. That gets angry and upset by sins of people, and we want to fight for people, fight for Jesus, and, 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 and oppress people and force them to obey God. That is not Christianity. That is not gospel, and that is the fruit. Of, the root of that is spiritual pride. Jesus is incredulous. What are you doing, Peter? Right, this is why I came. I came to serve. And die on the cross. That is the gospel. I came to seek and save that which was lost. I came for the forgiveness of sins through my death. You want to keep me from that shame? Keep me from the cross? You are actually against God. This is what your pride has produced in you. You are against God's plan. I am here to die away. Get away. And he went to the cross joyfully. Peter follows at a distance as he goes to Caiaphas' uh, uh, residence. And while our Lord is being tormented, persecuted, he's being slapped, beaten, spat on, accused, Peter and John are in the court, courtyard watching all of this occur. And then what happened? This little servant girl comes. He says, oh, I, I saw you with Jesus. I recognize, I'm really good with faces. I recognize you. You are with Jesus. And Peter denied it before them all. I don't know what you mean. Another servant girl, a 10-year-old girl comes and says, no, no, you were with you. You're a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it with an oath. I promise. I do not know that man. A little while later, the bystanders came up. You certainly are one of them. Your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean just like Jesus. Verse 74, then he began to invoke a curse on himself. He swears and he makes an oath. I do not know that man. And immediately the rooster crow, 3 a.m. signaling in Jerusalem. And he remembered Verse 75, the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
And then Peter, he went out and wept bitterly. In a parallel account, Luke twenty-two sixty-one, it says the Lord looked straight at Peter and their eyes met. Peter looked at Jesus' eyes and he remembered his words. And he saw that all his righteous statements, all his righteous intentions and desires, what was behind it was his spiritual pride. It was his boast, his, his, his self-centeredness, his self-righteousness. And he saw the ugliness of his own sins. And he wept. He went outside and he wept bitterly. Right? All of his bows came back to haunt him. All of it, just as all of our boats come back to haunt us. I've been there. I've been there in the courtyard of my own denials. I've been there remembering all the things that I had said, things that I would do for Christ, how I will not sin against God, right? how I will be such a righteous man and a godly man in so many ways. And... I've had these courtyard experiences where I saw my own spiritual pride behind my sins, behind my righteousness. Have you seen also the ugliness behind your righteousness? Peter, for the first time, saw his sin behind his righteousness, went outside bitterly. He understood Peter understands this verse better than anyone. Romans 5, 8, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Peter didn't have a time to reconcile before Jesus' death. As he saw the death of Christ, Jesus died for him. Wow, he had denied the Lord three times. Peter understands Romans 5, 8 better than any one of us here. And while there, seeing the cross, we don't have time. Friday night, we studied Matthew 27, Mark 15, of supernatural darkness, divine separation, our Lord's voluntary death, the beauty of Christ, his love, his humility, his mercy, poured out upon sinners, where Jesus prayed for the Roman soldiers who crucified him, that while the nails are being driven into his hands and his feet, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And soon as Jesus died, what happened? The Roman centurion looked up and he said, truly he was the Son of God. They went away praising God. The very men who murdered Jesus were the first ones to become Christians. First ones to have their sins forgiven. First ones to be invited, embraced by God through Christ. Peter, seeing that, he saw the ugliness of his pride, of his false righteousness. And then he saw the beauty of Jesus, his love through the cross. Now, the sermon will not be complete if we don't see how it all concludes, how Peter is restored John chapter 21, Peter told them before his death, after my resurrection, go to the Sea of Galilee, wait for me there in our, in our, where we used to meet, and I'll meet you there. Uh, he had appeared to his disciples several times, but our Lord has yet to address Peter and talk to him. So in John 21, all the disciples are gathered in the Sea of Galilee, and they're waiting for Jesus. And Peter, he's restless. He's nervous. Right? He's, uh, he's wondering, do I even deserve to belong here? You, know, you guys ever like sin? And you fear like, should I even go to church on Sunday? How could I go to church? How could I face Pastor James or my care group leader? Do you ever feel like you sin and you blow it and you're like, man, what if God leaves me? He never answers my prayer. What if God rejects me because I'm such a sinner? Well, Peter is thinking, do I even belong here? I, I don't belong here. 
Am I going to get the mother of all rebukes and just be cast away? He's waiting for Jesus and he's restless. He says, I'm going to go out fishing. I'm going to do something to take my mind off of this. A few of the disciples join him there in the Sea of Galilee. All night they're fishing. They catch nothing. In the morning, there's a stranger by the shore. And he says, cast your nets to the right side. And they do so. They catch a bountiful fish, a net full of fish. Apostle John turns to Peter and he says, it's the Lord. John recognizes him. So Peter, at this moment, he sees Jesus by the shore. He puts his cloak on and he jumps in the water and he swims towards the shore. That's, the, that's Peter's heart, right? Usually you take your jacket off to go for a swim. Peter puts it on. He's not thinking. He just jumps and he, he can't wait for the boat to dock. He wants to be with Jesus. He swims towards shore. And once he comes on shore, the memories of his denials flood his mind so he cannot approach Christ. The disciples come and what is Jesus, what is Jesus doing? He prepared them prepare for them breakfast, right? So he ministers word and deed, the whole of man, right? The gospel and the physical needs of man. He's got breakfast ready. He asks Peter to bring some more fish from the boat. He goes and he, he brings the fish, but he's there a long time. And it says here, primary account, they caught 153 fish. Now, why is that in there? Who cares how many fish they caught, right? Well, my interpretation of the white parts of John 21 is this, is that Peter went alone to the boat, and instead of just bringing the fish, he sat there by himself counting the fish because he didn't want to face Jesus. So ashamed, so full of guilt. And he counted every single one, and he went, went back, and he said, we caught 153 fish, a detail that only a primary witness would know of. And then Jesus turned to Peter in verse 15, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He asked him. Now, what is this question? Is the question, Peter, do you love me more than you love fish, your, you know, your job, your previous life? Is that the question? Do you love me more than fishing? Or is the question, Peter, do you love me more than you love these men? Or is the question, Peter, do you love me more than these men love me? I think that's the question. Why? Because the last time they talked, that's what Peter said. And Peter said, I love you more than these men love you. These men will fall away. Though they all scandalize, stumble and fall away from you, I never will. In fact, I will never deny you. Even if I have to die and be crucified with you, I will do it. So Jesus is asking him, is that true, Peter? Is that what happened? Do you really love me more than these men love me? And the Greek word there is agape, sacrificial love, unconditional love, right? Do you love me in this way more than these men? And Peter, you know, he's called out. And Christ undresses him. And Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo, Philadelphia, right? Brotherly affection. A city of brotherly love. I have deep affection. I can't use that word because what I just did. But you know I have brotherly affection for you. I Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He does it three times to counter his three denials. But he asked him again, second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. I phileo love you. Tend my sheep. He said to him, verse 17, the third time, Simon, son of John, and this time he says, do you phileo love me? Do you have deep affection for me? And he says, ah, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time. Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Now, this is the beauty. You know, in, in Matthew 26, Peter said, you don't know my heart. You don't know my, my devotion, my commitment, my, my religious com commitment to you. You don't know. You don't know anything. Now he says, Jesus, you know everything. You know my heart. You know that I've sinned, but you know my heart. And you know, 
in spite of all my failings, all my sins, I'm just a mess. I'm, I'm a sinner, I know. But Lord, you know my heart. You know that I love you. And this is where the omniscience of God is a comfort to Christians. And where when I was a young Christian, omniscience of God was a scary thing that he knows everything. But now as a mature as a Christian, omniscience of God is a comforting truth. That God knows everything and even my heart. And even though I'm a mess and I sin, he knows that I, I love him. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And Jesus said, when you were younger, you dressed yourself. When you're older, someone else will dress you and go where you don't want to go. And John makes a commentary. This is to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. So Peter denied Jesus three times because of spiritual pride. But after the cross, after the resurrection, what replaced it was humble faith. Humble dependence upon Jesus. And then what did that produce? Peter was persecuted by the Roman government and they gave him an opportunity to renounce his faith. Peter would not renounce Jesus. And they crucified Peter upside down. The upside down cross is not a satanic cross. It's St. It's Peter's cross. Peter asked to be crucified upside down so that no one would confuse Jesus, Lord, God, perfect Savior, with Peter, sinful, forgiven, Christian follower of Christ. He was crucified upside down, and he did not deny the Lord. He agape loved the Savior because of humble faith. Christ predicted this. It came to pass. This is... uh, the contrast, the two stories of Easter. The backdrop is our pride, our sinfulness. To highlight the jewel, which is Jesus Christ. To appreciate Jesus Christ, to see the beauty of the Lord, we need to see the darkness of our souls. And do you see spiritual pride in your heart raging out of control? How you think you're better than others. You think you're better than Christians. Christians are hypocrites. I'm more moral. I'm more godly. I'm more sincere. Or are you a Christian judging non-Christians out of spiritual pride? Do you see boasting in yourself using words, I will always or I will never? Do you reject God's word and believe in yourself? Do you see public acts of heroic righteousness, but consistent failings in your private life, especially in the area of prayer. And then do you get angry and unrighteousness? Do you get angry at sin or you want to fight for Jesus instead of trusting in the gospel? Go there. I know it's hard, it's ugly, it's, it's humbling, but dig deep to see the ugliness of our sins because it is there where we see the beauty, the glory, the brightness of our Savior. This is the paradox of the Christian faith. Way down is the way up. And I'll close by reading uh, this Puritan prayer called the Valley of Vision. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the heights with thee, but in the depths with me. Hemmed in by mountains of my sin, I yet behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of clearest vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the well, the brighter thy stars shine.
loving, gracious, merciful Father. Your goodness is your glory. And this morning we place ourselves in, in Peter's shoes and we stand in his shoes and look at Calvary and we consider this uh, amazing truth that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. That while we were denying you, rejecting you, we were puffed up with our pride. While we were blameless in our own eyes, righteous in our own sight, we had, our hearts were full of ourselves and yet you had compassion on us. You were merciful, you were loving and you experienced the darkest hour in human history. You were poured out and you were cursed on our behalf. You were forsaken by the Father. You were utterly alone and you paid the penalty of death on behalf of our sins. We cry out, what amazing love. What amazing humility. What beauty that is indescribable our hearts are brought low our hearts are broken and contrite our hearts are repentant and yet it is bathed in joy because what you have done for us what you call us is not penance but to trust in you for our righteousness for our forgiveness for our absolute complete acceptance by you through faith and so Lord Uh, with hearts comforted by your love. We celebrate your resurrection this day. We glory in the cross of Christ and we with hope await your return where we will be with you and see your beauty forever. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.